mother. It's not like a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. I never should have pushed you out. I suppose that's what mothers do, isn't it? You get the hell away from my daughter. Call me mommy. Not exactly maternal. Welcome to our You My Mother, the podcast that looks at mothers and parents and media for a glimpse into how mother characters inform and sometimes betray the expectation of what it means to be a mother and how we look at mothers in the world. This podcast is a proud part of the Glitterjaw Queer Podcast Collective. If you're looking for other queer media podcasts, check out the full roster of Glitterjaw shows at glitterjaw.com. I'm your host, David Arnold, and this episode, we're talking about a calamity from the skies. It's Genova from Final Fantasy VII. Now, even longtime fans of Final Fantasy VII have trouble getting their minds around the plot of this game, so I'd be completely up the live stream with no paddle if it wasn't for my co-host to this episode. No stranger to convoluted timelines, retconning, and rabid fan bases, my guest, Cass Prophet, co-hosts the Distant Echoes podcast covering all things Star Wars. Welcome to the podcast, Cass. Veni, 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 us, de memorifacios. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> I love that. I, I do think that anytime you enter a podcast space, some Latin should just be belted out at you. I yes. think that would be the way to go. In high operatic form and just, just come in with a billowing cloak no one can see because it's a podcast, you know. Well, and because of funny podcast time, we're talking right after Distant Echoes released its uh, m- uh, Halloween episode. Uh, I I know this comes out a couple of months later, but uh, you all have certainly covered uh, operatic performances in talking uh, about the man, the myth, the legend, uh, Darth Maul. Oh. How did you get? How did you get started on Star Wars, Cass? Oh God, uh, great question. I feel like I didn't really get into Star Wars until high school. Uh, it was kind of my my story with it. I watched it as a kid with my dad, you know, but he was more of a Star Trek guy. Um, which, of course, I have a love for both Star Trek and Star Wars. Um, but I watched I watched the movies and then I very quickly got into like lore. And I actually talked about this on our last episode. And I, I bring it up almost every single episode because I love Wikipedia, which is Star Wars Wiki. And I would just go on there during any downtime I had during class and I would just randomly read lore and I got obsessed. Wow. With it, so, <laughs> Oh, I love that. And that obsession isn't singular. Obviously this is something you share with Tommy and this is a joy that you all have had together for your entire friendship relationship and now marriage, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So oh, one of the God. first gifts I gave him uh, when we were dating at the age of 14 and 15, we've been together for, This is our, so it's our 10-year marriage anniversary this year, and it'll be 20 years that we've been together, which is wild. Oh, congratulations. That's so wonderful. But the first gift I gave him was a, it was when those Force Effects lightsabers first came out, and they were like $100. And so I was like, I'm spending all of the money that I have right now on this to give him like a red lightsaber. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow love bombing tommy i love that. yes that's incredible i literally like ran down the uh ran down the hallway with a lightsaber at his face and somehow didn't get like i don't know kicked out of school for having a weapon but <laughs> yeah 
Maybe a different time, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A slightly different time. Like, that's not a gun. That's fine. It's like a piece. Well, that's it's great. a sword. <laughs> There's a and I mean your your interests are not just among the stars. You you are uh, into a lot of different things, but uh, folks will probably know you as someone who is you've been on gimmicks talking about Star Trek, Star Wars. You obviously host a Star Wars podcast. We're here talking about a video game that is a lot more grounded. Uh, but there's a lot of shared DNA between the Star Wars world and the Final Fantasy world, um, mostly in the way that I think folks who created and developed Final Fantasy were huge fans of Star Wars. So they bring in some character names. There's some plot synergies that you see in some of these entries. So I, I think I'm in really good hands being being with you to have this conversation about this really, really key figure in the lore of Final Fantasy. I sure hope so. This is definitely... <laughs> My actually my origins with Final Fantasy go back earlier than my my love for Star Wars. Uh, Ooh, yeah, like well, I'm excited to dig into that then. Mm-hmm. So, but to get started, this episode we're covering the 1997 video game Final Fantasy VII. It was released on the Sony PlayStation, and the game centers around a group of eco terrorists looking to bring down an evil corporate empire who are draining life from the planet. Eventually, the group becomes caught up in a battle against a spacefaring entity uh, who has melded with a particularly malicious former elite soldier that threatens all life as we know it in the pursuit of power. Along the way, a personal connection between the main character Cloud and the antagonist is made clear while the group faces terrible threats, contends with grief and loss, and rides snowboards in what many consider to be the best entry of the Final Fantasy franchise. So Cass, Final Fantasy predates your interest in Star Wars. Where did you get started with the franchise Final Fantasy? Final Fantasy VII. That was the first one, baby. This was the first one. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And I love... Oh my god, that was amazing! I just I'm still caught up on the snowboard part because there's so <laughs> many. This is what I'm talking about. Like, this game is so deep and dark and beautiful and wonderful. And then there's freaking snowboarding. There's a snowboard mini game. There's a chocobo racing mini game. There is a moment where Cloud is literally on a dolphin trying to jump up like a power structure, like yeah. a power line or something. Like, what? It's um, <laughs> it's so incredible because this is perhaps the wackiest that you're able to get, and the series, their series always keeps a, a flair of wacky oh, yeah. within it. But I find the more realistic our graphics get, the less we're able to really contend with some of these completely out there things. Like all of a sudden we're on a motorbike and we're just going to have fun with that. Or for no particular reason, here is a combat sub mini game in the middle of your RPG. Yes, it was everything. It had everything for me as a child. Really and did. so that's why I loved it. I actually played it uh, right before we started recording. You and I were talking about how we mourn the loss of having our, um, oh, I can't think of the name of it now, but it has the green. Oh, the greatest hits. Yes. Version. The greatest hits version of it. I had that too. And okay. be- before I even had that, my uncle had in his like just box of games, he had a demo that had final fantasy seven on as a demo. Wow. And so I was really pissed because I was bored at his house and I already was like really big on video games as a child and there was nothing else to do at his house. And I started playing this and I was like, this game's amazing. And I got through like the first, I don't know, maybe like five minutes 
of you know running through Midgar as Cloud fighting like you know Shinra, and then I couldn't play it anymore, and so I had to go. I had to go find the game. I had, to, had go to go get, get the rest it. of it. So yeah. It's uh, it's really fun to hear about that uh, because I was very interested in Final Fantasy VII as well. We rented it from Blockbuster, uh, just you know, like a moment in time here. And I remember uh, having no cognitive awareness that you couldn't save to the compact disc because every video game I had ever played that had a save function allowed you to just do it naturally. And so we just couldn't turn it off because we had no memory card. That just wasn't a thing that was in the world. Oh my God. And um, my parents, of course, fretted over this and fretted over this because this is the only thing that I showed joy towards in my life. And my poor stepfather went out and he brought home Final Fantasy Tactics for a present and uh, I remember being very crestfallen, and that's the wrong take because that game is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, for a maybe a slightly more mature audience, it's a little bit more complicated, not quite the same as Final Fantasy VII. I love that. Did your did your love of Final Fantasy VII cultivate any other entries into the series? Did you keep following it oh, as it went forward? I was obsessed. That was my oh. life. Like Final, like Star Wars was a big thing, but honestly, even more than Star Wars, I was addicted to Final Fantasy games. Um, I've played all of them. Um, I recently played the MMO for a while, which is amazing because the best part of that MMO is if you've never played it, I don't know if you have. No. I, you know, I played Final Fantasy 11 when it came out, which was the first MMO. And, uh, I, I did, um, I did like it, but, uh, video games to me, for whatever reason, and I, I could talk to a psychologist about this, uh, are individualistic experiences. So as soon as I start to experience them with other people, my enjoyment dwindles significantly. I totally get that. I don't I don't stay on very long. I'll get really obsessed with something and then I'll, I'll taper off. But <laughs> what I loved about this was that the raids in the second, I guess it's 14, Final Fantasy 14, mm-hmm. are all based around villains or things from the other games. And so I have heard that it's like a love letter to all the rest of the series. Yes. All of the music you remember, like Mm. all uh, it's just so exciting. Like you, you have people like driving around on mounts in this game that are literally motorcycles from Final Fantasy seven, like and other (laughs) shit. So like, it's just really cool to see everybody around like doing that. Um, Yeah. I loved, I've, I've loved all of them. Um, the only one I really didn't like was, um, hmm. it's funny because the one quote I remember from this one is moms are tough. Oh, Final Fantasy 13. <laughs> Did not moms like it Moms are tough, all. mom. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, not the, not the first time moms are tough. Mom ha- has showed up on this podcast. Uh, <sighs> Nora, uh, was the mother of hope esteem. And she was fridged in order to motivate his entire plot. And uh, we hate that. We hate that decision. Uh, Final Fantasy Thirteen was pretty universally panned by like long-term fans. Uh, I've got to say, I like it. Um, I, but I didn't like it the first time I played it. I liked it a lot the second time I played it. I, I would probably give it a try again, just because it, you know, it takes me a while to to get into stuff i mean i thought i was going to absolutely hate final fantasy 12 when i played the demo the first one that yeah. kind of came out of the turn-based system i was so in infu- i was furious i was like they've ruined everything what is this and then <laughs> it came out and i was like wow 
Not only yeah. is this Final Fantasy, but like this is the Star Wars Final Fantasy game. Like, why? <laughs> why did I hate yeah. this? This is amazing. And we turned Chewbacca into a hot bunny lady. Like, hell yeah! Hello. Yes, thank you. The best. <laughs> the best. I mean, Chewbacca also very sexy. So sure. we don't need to. Yes. You don't need to. You don't need to pick how hot your Chewbacca is. They're hot on every dimension. It's very true. Any Chewbacca character is always perfect. Mm-hmm. Oh, Cass, that's that's so amazing. Do you do you go back to any of these on a regular basis? Is this like a comfort food thing or a security blanket? Absolutely. I mean, my cousins yeah. used to watch me play these and I, I like I felt like I was telling a story with them. Like they would sit after school and be like, What happened with Yuna? or like what's going on with blah 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 and like they would watch me play the game all the way through. Um and I yeah, I mean, I from con- consuming every single bit of Final Fantasy media I could for the longest time, and I do go back and play them. Um, since the Switch kind of has a lot of remastered versions, not just Final yeah. Fantasy VII, which I know we'll talk about, but recently, within the last two years, I would want to say I was trying to play through uh, Final Fantasy VIII again. Um, because I have a lot of nostalgia with that too, even though it's yeah. not one of my favorites um, storyline wise. I feel, I feel the same. I feel the same. It, it just was confusing, honestly. It just got even more confusing than seven near the end. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, um, there's a there's a term in the JRPG world called disc three crazy, and while, <laughs> while crazy is a pejorative term, uh, there really is no other way that you can refer to PS one era. Japanese role-playing games besides that that when you put the third disc in the plot just veers yes. wildly in some different direction <laughs> and uh, time compression uh, is is one of those things that just doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense and um, but you know what it's a good it's a good fun time you play cards and and what what more do you really need hell yeah oh yeah the card games were awesome too like yeah. I sucked at them. I was really bad at them. I kept thinking I knew how they worked. And then I was like, why the fuck did oh, that no. win? Like every single yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 got some real Cal, uh, Calvin Ball vibes and that the rules like constantly change. The points are kind of made up. Everything kind of goes everywhere. But I will say uh, Final Fantasy VIII was advertised in my, uh, what would I have been, a sophomore or junior in high school. And it was advertised in my school planner that they gave us. And it was like the premier ad spot that was purchased. And uh, yeah, yeah. And I remember thinking like they really sold the romance of Final Fantasy VIII. They did. Um, Yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think that's there as much as maybe the advertisements wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. I think it's a fine romance. Um, I don't know. I'm a Cloud Tifa guy, so I don't really need a lot more. Me too. I mean, I'm a Cloud Barrett guy, but that only works in the Golden Saucer, which uh, oh. I, I told you before we started recording that I just recently started replaying. And of course, I'm playing on the PlayStation. And it's like, oh, we have trophies. And I was like, well, that, that, that's what I'm doing. Yes. And uh, there was a trophy for getting the date with Barrett. And I was like, I remember the dialogue for this really sucking, but I, I'm going to do it. And boy, yeah, it is. It's a it's a rough pair of dialogue, but it's, you know, he's so cute. And um, you, you can't go wrong with it. I love it. That's so good. Yeah, well, the the series Final Fantasy VII in particular was so successful that it led to the development of many other games and a feature film that were all set in the world of Final Fantasy VII. So, guys, I'm going to go through these, and I'm interested to know if you've touched any of these as well. 
Um, the first one, I'm fairly confident you have it because it was a Japanese-only mobile game that was released in 2004 called Before Crisis, which told the prequel story of fan-favorite covert operatives, the Turks, six years before the events of the main game. Next, in 2005, the story of Final Fantasy VII continued directly to tell the story of, a, uh, of the group two years following the climactic battle with Sephiroth in Final Fantasy VII Advent Children. The year later, 2006, a game came out for the PlayStation 2 called Dirge of Cerberus that provided background on the optional character Vincent Valentine and his re relationship with Lucretia, who was the one who gave birth to Sephiroth. One year later... We have a game that's released for the PlayStation Portable called Final Fantasy VII Crisis Core that tells the story of Zack Fair, who Cloud would base his identity off of immediately preceding the events of the game. And then we skip forward a lot of time. Yes. But, but quite recently, 2020, the first of three segments of a retelling of the story of Final Fantasy VII was released using modern graphics and a deeper story. Final Fantasy VII Remake also made substantial changes to the events of the story, hinting that things might go very differently than Cass and I are prepared for. Absolutely. So Cass, I want to know which of these have you had experiences with? Which have you watched fan-translated YouTubes on? What's your deal with the Final Fantasy VII universe? Okay, well... I'm laughing because the Before Crisis, I was actually obsessed with. I never played it, but I was obsessed with the Turks. Um, I dressed up as Reno and went <gasps> to school dressed as Reno one day because I was such a nerd. I don't even remember oh why, but I wasn't the only one. <laughs> I don't remember I what happened there, but... I'm so happy right now. Uh, I mean, listen, because... They're so I was, cool. I was, I was, they're so cool. The music is so good for the Turks. Um, it, it's it's fantastic. They're cool. I, I think my favorite Turk was Rude. Uh, Rude's great. I don't think I don't think you can pick a bad Turk. Mm -mm. Honestly, mm -mm. I I love them. I loved Reno. I thought he was a cutie. Um, I also loved Rude though. Um, I actually was. I did a lot of role playing in high school, like on forums, and I'm pretty yeah. sure that I was Rude. Like. He was the only Turk that no one wanted, like, no one wanted to be him. And I was like, well, I'm going to oh, play yeah. Rude. And I ended up falling in love with him because I, like, played him and got to, like, explore could, his personality more. So. And I think you get to put a lot of personality into Rude because he's got a little bit of, like, a evolving slate yes, for you to take advantage exactly. of. Exactly. And his little crush on Tifa and, like, oh, oh it's so and who, cute. And who can't relate to that? Yeah, honestly. exactly. Like, I love how they're just like gossipers. Like every time yeah, they're not working, they're like, so who likes who? Who has a crush on this person? And like, what are we doing later? And like, they're just like never talking about work. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, I was a huge sine wave on the Turks. I started out a huge fan. Then as they became popular and I became edgier and emo, yep. I was like, mm, the Turks, everyone likes them. Mm -hmm. And I've really now as like a later in life adult have really come around because when you bump into the Turks and they are on vacation in Wutai, they were like, fuck no, we don't work on vacation. And I say, yes, Boundary Queen. Yes. Like, we love to see it. They know how it is. They 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 have they the do. right mindset. So yeah, I've come I back around too. <laughs> okay, so but so you did mess with Before Crisis mm -hmm. at least in an obsessive way because I know we couldn't play it yes. over here at yes. all. And we're talking mobile phone like Nokia mobile phone yes. game, not like cute Apple phone <laughs> situation. I don't even know how you played anything like 
I don't even know how that would have worked, but right. I would have figured it out. If I had it, I would have figured it out. But um, let's see. What else is on here? Oh, Advent Children. Absolutely. I had a bootleg version of that. Um, wow. And that's, I started learning Japanese. I mean, like, I'm obsessed Ooh, cool. with Japanese as a language anyway. I took it for three years in yeah. college. Most of my tattoos are um, from, like, Japanese art and things like that and mythology. So, like, you know, Final Fantasy kind of, like, I think really jump-started my love of Japanese culture. Yeah. 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 And so I had the Japanese version of that movie um, and then the horribly dubbed version as well after Yeah. I will say that if you're listening to this and you're like, wow, I had no idea there was a movie, I would really recommend that if you are the kind of person who can read subtitles, uh, that you should probably go with the now widely available Japanese version with uh, English subtitles available. Absolutely. And I think the dub... The dub is okay. I've certainly heard worse dubs, but the the Japanese performance is so much better than the the dubbed version. Agreed. And I didn't mind the movie. Um, I thought it was fine. I, I had a lot of fun with it. I think it was mostly just seeing characters in a graphical space that made them really pretty and beautiful and not like yeah. blocks with horseshoe heads and hands. Oh like, my gosh. You know what I mean? Like, they're just little, like, yeah. rectangle buddies. And so now it's like, wow, like, I finally get to see them and they look real. Um, so, yeah, I love that. Yeah. I actually brought it into theater class. It was, like, the end of the school year. Tommy was in there. And uh, our teacher was like, let's just watch movies. You know how, like, at the end of school year, no one wants to do anything. Yeah. So yeah. I was like, I have Advent children. And so I made the whole class watch Advent children. <laughs> Um, I think it's a, I think it's a fun watch. I have some problems with it because I really like the way Final Fantasy VII ends. Sure, uh, and we'll talk about that when we get there in our conversation. But I I do think that it's gorgeous, and it shows I think artistically a lot of where they want how they wanted um, the action to look mm-hmm. that you couldn't communicate with the technology was available on the PlayStation. And that makes total sense. I, I do like that after a battle with Tifa, her phone rings and it's the victory music. And that sticks with me forever and ever for all time. That was great. That oh, that was so good. There there are some really cute, good moments in that for sure. Um, yeah. When, when we all got uh, to points in technology where you could customize an alarm, uh, I tried waking up to the victory fanfare. And uh, I thought that it would make me excited about the day because there was this thing that... that my hobby had programmed into me to be a dopamine boost. And instead what it did is make me hate Final Fantasy. And so I stopped doing that. I actually think I did that same exact thing at some point. Like I think. Did you have similar results? Yes. Like I was like, why would I, why do you want to hear this? And it's also like, I can't start my day having a victory music because I haven't done anything. anything. I guess I'm happy to wake up. I mean, that's some days, some days waking up is enough. That is true. That is true. That's very true. That's true. How how about Dirge of Cerberus? Were you a Vincent Valentine fan? I mean, he's sort of Turk adjacent. I love Vincent, <gasps> but I hated Dirge of Cerberus. Oh, because it's not a JRPG. It's a it's a first person shooter. It was weird. Right? Well, I got that part. Actually, the combat was fun. Like the like okay. the combat was fun. I mean, Vincent has a gun, so like turn yeah, base turn base doesn't really seem to work very well with him because it's like pew. Like it just it just makes more sense for him to be like an FPS guy. But I had a hard time with the storyline of Dirge's mm. Cerberus, which is strange for me because 
as we'll go into, the whole thing with the Setra, the Ancients, the experimentation, Hojo, is like my favorite part of Final Fantasy VII. Ooh, I, cool. I love that sci-fi-esque part of it. But I, there started to become, isn't there like a character in there that's like a J-pop person? Yes. That confused yeah. me. <laughs> There was a lot of extra, and I think this happened with both this and um, Crisis Core. Yes. That that the there the the people you maybe care about the most are are there, and you love them when they're there. But there's a lot of extra, and I, I don't think they're bad. I just think they're from a different game. Exactly. That's what that's what yeah. I didn't like. It's not that I didn't like them. Yeah. It's just that, like I was hoping for more in depth with Vincent specifically. But it was like a Vincent's relationship with this other person that I had no idea about. And the same thing with Crisis Core. Like I was so obsessed with Zach. Zach is such a fun, you know, enigmatic, like interesting character. And Crisis Core was actually really good. I really did like Crisis Core. I just think. Did you have a PSP? Were you one of the like eight people who? Owned one? Yeah, we had a P- Tommy had a PSP <gasps> and he had wow. Crisis Core and we both played wow. it and uh, that had me tearing up because yeah I'm a I'm a I'm a Tifa and and Cloud stand but I also really love Zach and Aerith so oh yeah that's that's really fair that's really fair mm-hmm. it's Zach fair <laughs> stop <laughs> sorry yeah <laughs> um no I, I you know I didn't have a chance to get a PSP it was just the time of my life when I was in a in a different place. Uh, so I have been looking forward to playing the remake that's come out for this. But uh, as you know, there's just too many fucking games to play right now. So it, mm-hmm. it just hasn't been um, been there yet. But one day, my, my Nintendo Switch will just be a Final Fantasy machine because it can do all of these games, Heck which yes. is great. Yes. And what's really cool is that the reason I haven't gotten to like, the reason I haven't finished a Final Fantasy game since the first few time, hundred times I've played all of them, is that they're just so slow. Like I love turn-based, yeah. but it's so slow and they're so grindy. And even though I spent most of my childhood grinding so that I could kill Sephiroth or Seymour or whoever it was, like, and that is like ingrained in me. Like I would come home and just like level up, level up, level up, like run around, run around, run around, you know, and like fight. I don't want to yeah. do that part again. So like, the yeah. cool thing about the Switch is that most of the, I know at least in nine and eight, you can fast forward. Yep. Three times speed, uh, even on seven, even on seven. And uh, I I feel, I feel like a fake fan now, but there's even a button you can push to like just automatically fill your limit breaks. And I'm to the point where like, I just can't, I, I can't wait, gang. I got to kill, I got to kill this stuff. And I'm not even, I don't even care. No. That, that's, there's a reason they did that because we there already, is. we already wasted a lot of our lives doing that. They, they're, they're it, granting us a service. <laughs> and Cass, I ask you, where were the podcasts then? Because <laughs> if you're just grinding AP uh, to, to level up materia, you know, what would be great to do? Listening to your buddy's podcast. Hell because yes. That's what that's meant for. It's so true. Can I tell... I'm sorry. I'm going... This, I guess it's kind of tangential, but can I tell you one of my favorite things to do? Um, yes. With Especially with Final Fantasy VII. This was a huge... Like, this is like the most core memory of my high school time was listening to Linkin Park's reanimation CD. Like, the Meteor... Like, well, specifically reanimation, the remixes. And I played that in the background. I would turn down the music in Final Fantasy VII when I got like just tired of it because I was sure. grinding. And I would play that over top of it. And it went so well with the game. Yeah. Like, oh, I bet. So that album is just like a 
it's just like an overture to Final Fantasy VII to me now. <laughs> that is incredible. And also how locked in time was that? That is, mm-hmm. that's just such a moment really of, of culture, of media that, that just is together. Yeah. And that's really, really cool. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, well, the second part of the remake, did you mess with the remake? I guess I didn't even ask about this. Have you played Final Fantasy VII Remake? I have, and I loved it. I, yeah, I did too. I had, you know, I was worried. I was definitely worried. I literally just kept saying for years and years, like, just make seven over and keep everything exactly the same. I do not care yeah. that it's the same outcome. I do not care if you keep the same, like, dub, like, English, like Japanese to English dub mistakes. I don't care. Like, please keep them the same. Like, I want everything the same, but I just want people to not look like blocks, and that's fine. Yeah. Um, so I was very surprised when the story started changing. And at first same. I was scared. <laughs> and then I kind of was like, you know what? This is made... For a new generation, but it's also made for us who have played this yeah. fifty times, so that we can experience something new. And I'm I'm kind of excited about it. Yeah, I share your exact feeling because I was also a little scared, and then the game showed me Wedge with three cats in his arms. Yes, and and let him live, and I was like, you know what? Change whatever the fuck you want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if this is what I get, is this cat dad, um, all cuddly and ready? Then you you go you you go to town. Absolutely. You do what you do. Honestly, the part that had me scared was I thought Barrett was gonna die, and <gasps> that, oh, well, that would have well, been. But that was that would be a I would stop. I can't. Yeah, I would have stopped playing. <laughs> yeah, um, I I I I also think that I was scared that when we remade this, just because of how realistic tones change some of the funnier parts of Final Fantasy VII, that we'd lose some of the whimsy, but. We still get cross-dressing cloud. We still get uh, weird mini games. We still, and in fact, there's a little bit more even because they had to, not had to, but they chose to extend out the story of Midgar so substantially that you had to put more things in. And I, I from what we've seen of the next, the next iteration of this Final Fantasy Rebirth, it seems like the whimsy is well intact moving forward. I absolutely agree. I, I was I was worried about that too, but the entire Honeybee Inn experience was fabulous. The fact that like not only was he like dre- like in a dress, but he was literally a drag queen. Like he became oh, a yeah. drag queen and was trained by drag queens. Like it, it they just elevated everything. It was amazing. Yeah. So um you know, next month, Final Fantasy Rebirth, which is the second tel- second part of the story comes out. Is this a day one for you, Cass? I hope so, if I can afford yeah. it. <laughs> okay, well, listen, we will. I'm going to start a Patreon for this podcast just to make sure Cass can do this, so that we can get back together. Because I think, I think our, I, I think, I think Mother Genova is going to be making an appearance oh, yes. in a pretty substantial way in part two. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait! I just got goosebumps. Like you have no idea. Oh yeah, and you got to ride a Segway through Costa del Sol, and so <laughs> I, I need to make sure that that happens for you. That is probably the best part. It was that and seeing Red 13 on a Chocobo that were the like, okay, well, I don't pre-order games, but like I'm definitely pre-ordering this game. It is. It is a delight. Everything that has been changed is not entirely um, 
like illuminated yet, which is really cool. I like that I don't know where it's going, even though I was afraid yeah. at first. But now I'm like, I see why. Like, this is exciting. This is like a whole new game. But like, I still get to enjoy all my favorite characters and things. So, um, well, all of this actually leads into where I wanted to talk about because all these other universes, all these other characters have meant that we needed to do a little bit of retconning for what happens in the game. And notably, the role of the subject we're here to discuss, which is Genova. And so, Cass, Star Wars has a fair bit of retconning. So, I was hoping <laughs> you could help folks who are new to the term understand what retconning is. Sure. So, literally, it means retroactive continuity. Um, and essentially what happens is like a, a work will establish something, but then for whatever reason, whether or not the story has progressed to a certain extent, or there's just so much media now out there, um, you know, some of people just decide those who are sort of quote unquote in charge of that media, mm -hmm. or who are writing that media, who are most popular writing that media, decide to change something that has happened in the past. And so the perception of what was made is now altered to either align with something new or um, not really. I mean, it can even be used to, I feel like there's pros and cons to retconning. Yeah. Right? Oh, totally. Like it can be used yeah. to like erase things that perhaps weren't that great historically and need to be changed to make the, the story better um, and more palatable to a new world and a new voice. I feel like that's the better one is usually when it's yeah. when it's done in a positive way. But what's interesting yeah. you said about Star Wars is that and Tommy and I have been like gabbing about this the whole time. Dave Filoni, who's pretty much in charge of Star Wars now, as we all know, um, has not really retconned Star Wars, but rather um, is like taking what is now called Legends, which we can say is like the retcon Star Wars, right? Yep. Everything from that has been retconned. Um kind of pulled out what he loved the most about that original stuff and um, is reusing it in a new lively yeah. way. And I don't know if you could really, some of that has been retconned. Like some of the history has been retconned, but the um, excitement and the uh, characterization of certain characters, even though their names might be changed and things like that are, are still in existence, which is very exciting. I was really worried when the whole Legends canon thing happened in Star yeah. Wars. Um, but honestly, I embrace it wholeheartedly now. Uh, specifically with our Halloween episode, I was talking about things that have been changed to um, make things better in the world we're now in. There, were, there was a lot of crappy white guys involved in the original Star oh, Wars. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that have really yeah, sexist weird. bad views. And so... I'm glad that we're seeing new stories and new characters and things like that. So, yeah, a, a couple of months ago, Tommy and I talked about it on the Padme episode, which was that there is this theory that Padme survived and she's like wrecking havoc. And I would love somebody to retcon the fuck out of that and give me a Padma Padme series on Disney Plus. Fuck yeah, that would be so would good. It. Yeah, just you know, weaving some some narrative into that. But, uh, you know, you you mentioned the Star Wars Legends. So this all happened in 2014, right? This was before the sequel movies came out. It was before we were doing things. There was just too much out there. And so Lucasfilm really said, we're going to take all of this and we're going to say it's part of, like, the ethos of the universe, but it's not 
tr- it's it's not canon. This this idea that there's only one story that is canon. Exactly. Yeah. And I think I think fans of comics are 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 used to being more pliable in this. But as as Star Wars particularly took on a very sort of diehard, unique fan who who made their entire lives about what's real and what's not real, uh, perhaps alongside the advent of the internet. I'm not trying to directly make a correlation there, but I think <laughs> maybe they were related. Uh, that that it was important for these executives to say like we're we're sort of resetting the clock. But but again, if you were if you were a reader of Batman or Spider Man or anything like that, that that shit just happens on a yearly basis. We 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 reset the clock because it's fun to reset the clock. Mm-hmm. And you know what? You and I both had this fear that we were resetting the clock on one of our favorite franchises and that it was going to go wrong, and so we fell into it too. But thank God, because now they're doing something even cooler that we don't even know. Yes, it's a whole new like. It's like a what if in some ways, but yeah. the what if is yeah. becoming maybe the reality. Real. And and the cool thing about like this entire storyline of, of Final Fantasy is that you have a main Final Fantasy seven is that you have a main character that, as you said earlier, assumes the entire identity of another character because mm. he's just like poisoned by the world yeah. and the crazy um, like, you know, space shit. So like anything can happen. Anything can blow up and be weird. Any anybody can come back to life. Anybody can die or not die. Like it's just you can just do whatever you want. It's fine. <laughs> well, we're gonna shine a pale green light on everything we can in our discussion, but we'll be using the main game as the focus. So even though there's a lot else out there in the world, Cass and I are gonna stay pretty solidly to the three discs that came out in 1997 as we discuss uh, the Crisis from the Sky, Genova. So. To get started, I wanted to talk a little bit about what we know about Genova from the base game, which is that 2,000 years prior to any of this getting started, something fell onto the planet which created the northern crater, and it was a massive uh, damage to the planet. And this is where Genova first emerged, an extraterrestrial being who traveled from planet to planet, sucking the planet's life force and using the husk to travel on to the next one. Able to mimic those around them, Genova blended in among the dominant humanoids of the planet, the Cetra, and introduced a virus to turn them into monsters. The non-magical ancestors of the Cetra, which is us humans, right, uh, hid while the Cetra were destroyed, and the last few Cetra were able to band together to defeat Genova and quarantine them inside the northern crater. From there, we fast forward 30 years into the game, and evil corporation Shinra, which I I love that these are just mustache-twirling villains for the entire time, uh, are exploring ways to cultivate Mako to create energy for the the people. And while they're looking for better ways to do it, they uncover Genova and believe that they have found the remains of Acetra. Hoping to recreate Acetra with Genova cells, scientists began to create a class of superheroes or super soldiers, and they do experiments by injecting the fetus of two scientists directly with Genova cells. Shinra keeps Genova at a reactor in Nibelheim. 
And that pretty much takes us up to the beginning of the game. So Cass, now that we've got uh, sort of the, the whole setup ready to go, I wanted to ask you that it was a huge interest of mine to cover a video game character on this podcast. And I was stoked and you pitched Genova. So what made this character rise in your mind when thinking about mother figures? Sure. Well, I mean, Genova is... A mother because Sephiroth thinks she is one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but that's kind of where the motherhood sort of stops in some Ooh. ways with her. At least not from Sephiroth's point of view, because we'll talk about nope. that. He's got severe mommy issues. But Genova itself is an alien, is this yeah. being um, that does have um, like feminine looking features, at least like the reason that I, I, oh, I don't even know where to start because I just love the concept art of Genova. I oh, remember yeah. one of the most bone chilling moments that I've ever had playing a game was that first moment that Sephiroth is in Shinra and you know uh, headquarters, and we're following Cloud and this streak of blood that's just going up yeah. and down the staircase and the halls, and we don't know what's happening, and then you see. There's like a moment where you can like kind of click on this like cube or whatever, this like cubicle that she's in and uh, it's just jarring. And it was also very visceral. Like not only was there blood, but there were like, like breasts. There was like nudity. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was something that you wouldn't, I mean, there was an eyeball instead of a, a an areola, yeah. but it, it's like, it what? was, <laughs> yeah, still to see a breast in a video game was so mind blowing. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe not later in my life, but no. definitely right now in my life. <laughs> yeah, this is probably one of the first tits that I saw in a video game <laughs> that also didn't have a person's head on top of them. Right, and and it's funny because we we've talked about the blocky nature of it, but when we zoom into that cubicle or that little storage containment unit that Genova's kept in, it is that FMV. We get a quick shot of of a of a painting that's been put into the game that we're observing instead of the polygon graphics Mm -hmm. it was beautiful it just stood out to me and every single time you see genova uh it's one of these fmvs for the most part and each one of them is just more beautiful than the last and strange you know first obviously there's this headless one and then a little bit later when we see the uh flashback to nibelheim and sephiroth discovers his true identity you see this like metal encasement and there's always this this is actually i guess part of more of like a a more biological mother in in terms of like there's like a uh umbilical cord that's like coming out of its stomach and i don't know we don't know if that's like part of the original alien or if it's something the scientist put to you know figure out how this creature was like creating clones or 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 um making you know assimilating itself into society like it's just there's so much we don't know about it still exactly you know and and it does even call the question what what would genova look like in a world that didn't have other people because the mimicry is such a big part of this creature that maybe part of how we see Genova in this game is actually how the Cetra once looked 2000 years ago. It's certainly not how Aerith and Iflana look who we, who, who we see later and are the surviving ancestors of the Cetra. Mm-hmm. They look, they look like 
a hot girl and yeah. I assume her hot mom. Yeah. Uh, hopefully we'll find out if Lana was, was smoking. Yeah. I, really I mean, her so. pixelated version was really cute. It just looked like Aerith, but older and a bigger bow. <laughs> You know what? It, it reminded me of Aerith when she was going on the date with Don in um, yes for Don Cornera's mission because she had the different hair. Absolutely, she sort of had her mom's hair. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, so yeah, just this like jarring imagery. Uh, it just just like absolutely stood out to me, and the fact that yeah. the word mother is such a like it's not mom, you know, it's not mommy, it's mother, and. Yeah. It's such a like respectful and yet very cold and distant way to address a mother figure. And that is the word that Sephiroth uses. I mean, he says mother. Um, oh, I'm going to go see my mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's and that's talk about a chilling moment. Like ooh. Absolutely. And and to and the obsessive nature of his desire to find his mother and yeah. make her feel proud of him. Is just yeah. like ingrained in him even as a child, even though he's never met this person in his life um it's yeah. just was told she died during childbirth yeah, yeah exactly exactly and i you've got to assume at some point in time sephiroth also learns the truth but he doesn't seek lucretia Mm-mm. he only cares about Genova, and i think that's really important for us and i think another thing that i'm really excited to talk about is at some point in time we don't know where Genova starts and sephiroth starts and both of them end and i think there's some interesting dialogue to be had about the real life implications of how children and their mothers sometimes become confused, conflated, and how problematic that is for our psychology. Absolutely. It's so good. It's such a good choice, Cass. And it's funny because uh, I, I've talked about this with Tommy. I've talked about it with Derek. And and every time I say like, oh yeah, we're going to be talking about Genova this week. And uh, they've said like, how? <laughs> And I was like, no, 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 no. Castle and I can do this. Don't, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. And so, if if you're one of those people who has gotten into this point of the recording and you say how, well, we're gonna do it. And I, I promise you, it's gonna be fantastic. It's gonna be fucked, but it's gonna be yeah. fun. <laughs> <laughs> we, you mentioned this earlier, but you have a little bit of interest in some of the key players associated with Genova because uh, when we we talk about the deep background in this game, probably no. No other Final Fantasy entry to this point has started so in media rest. There is so much world built. There is so much history. And when you first played this game, or or maybe early in playing this game, how deep into the lore did you get with Genova, Sephiroth, Lucretia, Hojo, and the wild ways in which this like tiny scientific community was intertwined? I think part of the fact that I was really into a lot of role-playing communities like made me learn more about the characters. And so what I would find when I joined like role-playing forums and stuff is that I really liked playing characters that no one else wanted to play or like, you know, everyone wanted to be Tifa or everyone wanted to be like the main characters and whatever, whatever thing that I was like, you know, role-playing in. And so I always found like a minor character or somebody that was evil most of the time because it was really fun to get into the psychology. Um, yeah. I even played Genova a little bit. Um, Ooh. I, I don't know. I had a friend in high school who also loved Final Fantasy and she played Sephiroth and I played Genova. And we got to like experiment with like just the strange. Yeah. How do you play an alien? <laughs> or how do you play this alien that doesn't actually talk to anyone like face to face, things like that. And it was mostly just description, you know, just like yeah. a storyline. But 
even beyond that, it had me digging up like, yeah, the con- I wanted to make sure, I always wanted to make sure, like I studied the character, just like when I did with acting when I was like in theater, I wanted to study the character from all angles and, and know as much as I could, even if we didn't have as much information about them. So Wikipedia was always a good source. Even back then, I could look and I could remember, you know, even if like in the game, there wasn't as much dialogue as I hoped, you know, you could go and see like, the original Japanese version, you know, translating yep. some of the dialogue from that and how different some of even just like the words in that would change the storyline of the American version, which was amazing, which was really cool. So, um, yeah. yeah, it was just a, it was just a, it was just a hole that I went down really, really far. Um, I, and I always I love that. Though. Yeah. I mean, it was a big, <laughs> sorry, um, this is very embarrassing, but, I was with Tommy most of my life, but I did have one boyfriend before him. And this guy was nuts. Like, he just was, like, no good. He was not a good dude. Um, But the other thing that was part of him was that he would, like, pretend he was Sephiroth. (laughs) So I would call him and I would be like, hey, is Dustin there? And he'd go, no, it's Sephiroth. And I'd be like... I think you're trying to think this is hot, but it's just weird yeah, and, it's I, and it freaks it, me out. <laughs> here's the deal. It could be, but you have to, you have to like, you have to have an established relationship. Exactly. That. At that you point I was like, no, bat. you're mean to my brother. I don't, I don't like you. Yeah, you don't do, do that. that. You can't do that. You could do that if you had an established relationship and it would be hot. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. everyone in this game is beautiful. If I've not said that before, oh, God. everyone's yeah. attractive. If Advent Children did not explain that to you, you know, and of course, everyone loves Sephiroth. He's like this beautiful androgynous, like he doesn't have a shirt on half the time. Like he's literally shirtless at the end and he's yes. got black leather pants. So like, I get it. He's like every like anime loving, like little, little boy is like, I want to be Sephiroth. Like he's cool. But uh, Dustin was not Sephiroth and he was not no. cool like Sephiroth was. So he failed. But that just goes to show you, like, I, I mean, I was everything for a while. Final Fantasy VII was my life. Like it was just yeah. everything to me. Um, and so, yeah, I would just research everything I could about it. And I think the sci-fi aspect of the game, the the scientist, um, the experimentation was just fascinating to me. Um, I always loved how Final Fantasy games would merge this like high fantasy with this like technological component. Yeah. Um, oh, so. And cool. each one did it differently. I mean, there. Yep. Uh, Ten was also one of my favorites. I loved Blitzball. Uh, another game I could never win. Um, but it just had this cool mashing up of fantasy and sci-fi that nothing has ever, nothing does the same way, really. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? That, that probably speaks to a little bit of why you might've bumped on 13 too, because it was very science heavy, very futuristic, but not as much in the fantasy realm. Mm -hmm. And that I think, I think hurt it a lot versus 12, which felt very fantasy forward. And then really quickly you were like, Oh no, we got some steampunk going on here. I agree. I think that's something of the flavor of final fantasy. That's hard to take away from it in any way. If it's too realistic, it it's hard to grasp. And I can't, I can't say anything about the newest game that just came out, which seems very fantasy forward, but it is. I, I seem I'm very excited about it. Um, 
Yeah, great play. I mean, you should play it. You should absolutely play it. I cannot um, wait. But for some reason, yeah, I don't know. So I, maybe I'll go back and play 13 at some point. Well, for now, we're going to stay in a comfort zone and we're going to talk about this because according to howlongtobeat.com, the main story of Final Fantasy VII takes about 36 and a half hours to complete. I would verify that is true. Now that I have access to three times speed, it's going a little bit faster. So to better explore Genova, Cass and I are going to talk through the high level major story beats of Final Fantasy VII. And we began, the story begins with Cloud, an ex-soldier and mercenary who has joined Barrett and his eco-terrorist group Avalanche as they take out Mako reactors that are operated by the mega corporation Shinra, which Avalanche believes are draining the life force of the planet. Cloud is brought into this work by his childhood friend Tifa. While trying to take out a reactor, Cloud gets separated from the group, and that's when he first encounters Aerith. So, Cass, the game starts with an ambitious but very local conflict between Avalanche and Shira. Shira with Shinra. Uh, not Shira, my best friend from Social Work School. <laughs> what what strikes you in the first few major set pieces of this game? It's it's so industrial. And it ends yeah. up becoming very different than what you find at the end of the very first disc, even. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm moving a little bit forward on your... <laughs> On your outline here, but there's a deep contrast between being in this city that is not even above ground in some ways. There's a giant plate that is covering the city. And not only is that plate, um, you know, taking us out of reality and earth and nature, which is like a big juxtaposition in this game. Like Avalanche is like trying to protect the earth and save it. And Shinra is, you know, destroying the earth in some ways, or at least that's how Avalanche sees it. But there's also this social hierarchy that is very distinct. I mean, you have Shinra that you can see from the top of the sky. And then underneath that, you have the slums um, and the people living in, like, squalor and, and just filth. And yeah. Well, and Shinra has this this massive power, and they also want to shut down any opposition. So at one point in time, they drop a section of the plate, killing everyone who lives beneath it, and probably all the people who live on top of it, because they would obviously have some sort of damage from, from the collapse, and then blaming it on Avalanche in order to stymie public support of this, of this sort of upsurgency. Mm-hmm. And I think the yeah. first time I played it, I mentioned that I played this game... My my memory is very bad, but I have to say that I I've played this game all the way through at least five times, like yeah. at least. And and some of those runs were faster than others, you know. Some of them were slower because you have to get all the weapons, you have to get all the chocobos, you have to do everything. Um, you know, and we were we were in a world where we had a book, a guide that would Ooh. show us that there were other things to be discovered in these games, and so. Um, 
which we have the internet now. It's way faster. But yeah. it was more fun doing it in a book. Are you talking about the Brady Games guy that had the illustrations and let you knew where things were? I think that's ha- that has to be what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. Because I remember a, the was... fan art and stuff, too. Or not the fan yeah. art. The yeah. uh, concept art. Yeah. Yeah. It was a it was a great guide, and that's how I learned about a lot of the optional content. Because how else you, like you, I don't know. It was still an era of going to school and talking to friends about playing this. But if they were like, "Oh, you can meet Sephiroth's mom," you were like, "Okay, cool. Yeah, my uncle works for Nintendo. Don't worry about it." <laughs> um, but but some of this ended up being true. And this, you know, when I first played the game, it was it was before there was the kind of internet that there is today, and so you had to rely on these printed guides or really word of mouth in order to figure out how to do things. But as the game moves forward, Aerith gets uh, kidnapped by Shinra. The group goes to the headquarters to save her and meet Red 13 in the process. While in headquarters, the group finds the specimen Genova. We spoke about this a little bit earlier in a tank. And this is where we first encounter who we believe to be Sephiroth. He goes slaughtering everyone on, on multiple floors. We follow this creepy blood trail up. The music has gotten real sinister and spooky. And we find out that he's even killed the president of Shinra. Cloud, Tifa, Barrett, Eris, and Red 13 escape Midgar in a climactic motorcycle slash cute little truck chase. Yes. And then we're outside of the city. And Cass, were you... Like, my mind was blown, truly and honestly. I thought we were going to stay in Midgar the whole game. Absolutely. And this was my first, this was, like, one of the first moments of true wonder and, like, excitement about this whole really, like, sandboxy feel of this game. Because yeah, you're, you're more pigeonholed, I feel like, in newer Final Fantasies to go certain places. Even though it seems wide, there's nothing quite like what you feel in the original few Final Fantasies, even the pixelated ones. And also, specifically, I'm thinking about, um, like, my top faves, uh, 7 and then 8 and 9. 9, 8 wasn't one of my favorites, but 9 is one of my favorites. And that game, too, you just kind of like, oh, you get out of the first place that you're in and you're on the world map view. And it's not only like, you know, it's a sprawling, beautiful thing. You're this tiny little thing on this literal sphere, like on this entire world. And you're like, I can go anywhere I want. Like, what, what do I do? And you, I mean, you quickly find out that you're going to die if you go to certain places (laughs) before others, but the game doesn't really stop you from going some places. Yeah. And, and way more true for early games that I think a lot of people are enjoying now because of the pixel remasters that are available. But the, the world openness has always been a, a feature of this, and I think that's where people who are critical of sort of the PS2 era forward have often said, like, wow, this is, this is kind of bumping me a little bit. Like, 10 is one of my favorite games, but it, it, it's, a very, it's a very linear experience because it's telling a story that can only progress in one direction versus this in which the world building is so available to you across the entire globe of the planet. And that, that does feel free. That does feel open. And I think there's also something to be said about final fantasy seven in particular, revealing this wide open world after looking at the top of a plate for the first, I don't know, as a child, I remembered it being thousands of hours. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think on a recent playthrough, I was like, wow, 3.30? 3.30? I got through this in three hours and 30 minutes. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah, I um later on in the game, I got 
it was actually really sad. I put the game down for a while, a long time, because I got lost. I got lost and did not know yeah. where to go next. And yeah. sometimes that is the flaw of having openness is like, you think you've, you think you've explored every ounce of everything. And yet there's this like tiny little pixel you didn't touch that lets you enter something a certain way. And you're like, Oh shit, that's where I'm supposed to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, we're talking about a big final fantasy one problem. I mean, you just gotta, you gotta try to do your best. And that had at the time, some of the best uh, player guidance available through dialogue and yet still you you as as a programmer you have to toggle certain switches through player action in some way or another uh, a lot of game dev right now is talking about how quote-unquote easy games are made by highlighting where ladders are or, or ledges and you know old old gamers like me would say like well laura croft didn't need this you just you just knew to jump on a ledge or you fell to your death. Mm -hmm. And like, that's not an accessible way to design games. Okay. Like you want people to enjoy things. It's okay for people to know what ledges are okay to hang on to. Yeah. You don't want people getting frustrated to the point where they never pick up the game again, which yeah. is a, which was a real thing for me for a while. I did not. And I, that could have ended me, my, you know, my interest in final fantasy then and there. And then, one day I just kind of reset and I picked it back up and I just went the right way. And I was like, oh shit. Okay. <laughs> Here it was. Well, luckily uh, the camera is positioned just to show you the edge of the city you're supposed to go to immediately after coming out of Midgar. It's really well designed. You get a little menu pop-up that tells you how to use the camera, but it's positioned in such a way that the player is able to see it. And so you walk over to the city calm because the the group is chasing after Sephiroth. So they stop and sort of the party makes a demand of Cloud to be like, what's going on here? Because there's obviously something between you and Sephi and we need to know a little bit more about what it is. And so Cloud goes into this flashback and Cass, this isn't our first time controlling a character in this series through flashback. In Final Fantasy VI, we got to control Maduin, who was Terra's father, but there was no combat. It was just sort of controlling a character to experience a slightly interactive cutscene. But this is probably the most rounded out version of this in any Final Fantasy game. So what did you think about this interlude going into Cloud's memory to explore the past? Absolutely. So um, I'm glad you have a little bit of an outline of what that is because there's so many flashbacks in this game that I almost forgot. <laughs> but I was about to ask, but this is the one where you not only control Cloud, well, you control Cloud, but you... Yeah, you're just, you're just King Cloud Cloud. You, Little baby Cloud. Yes, but you also are accompanying Sephiroth, a younger yeah. Sephiroth, um, who yep. was in Soldier at the time with you and was seen as this perfect pretty boy soldier that everyone adored and loved. And this was amazing. And every single time another game does this after this, I'm like, oh, they're doing the it Final Fantasy well. VII thing where... You have the final boss of the game or the most evil villain in the game given to you and you are shown how fucking powerful they are, yeah. even in the yeah. past. Because you roll up into combat and you're like, oh shit, there's a dragon, which is like the one time you see a fucking dragon in this game, which was kind of crazy. I mean, there, there are summons, but like it's just a dragon on the field in the grass. Yeah, just sitting there. And yeah. it's like, okay, in Cloud... I'm pretty sure in my playthrough, this doesn't have to happen every time because it's randomized, of course, but I'm pretty sure Cloud died. Like, the the, oh, yeah. the dragon I, just yeah. fucking died, bit Cloud him died and he died. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. And then 
this is going to be over. Sephiroth one hit KOs and the kills and a the dragon. Great, oh, the like piece de resistance of this is that you can see how much damage he does, and it's just nine 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 across the board, yeah. and you're just like, holy shit, this guy's a monster, like. All the mechanics there. All the mechanics are there. So you can look at Sephiroth's inventory. If you yeah. try to unequip him of something, you get a snarky dialogue like, don't touch my stuff. <laughs> uh, you can see the materia he's equipped with. You can see his statistical outlay, which are massively inflated compared to the characters that we've got. And compared to baby level one cloud, 120 hit points, the, like strength of two, his it, it just it gives you so much perspective on how outclassed everyone else who even was in soldier was from Sephiroth. And there's some other, there's some other lore. I was just going to say, I'm not going to go too much into it because I haven't, I don't really remember it very much, but I do know there's something in another piece of media with Sephiroth where they explore his time in soldier and they actually find out that you find through that, that he wasn't as great as everyone made him out to be. And that he suffered for that. He, was yeah. given a complex for that so that he could become the best. Um, and that's probably why he hates everyone and everything, uh, among other things, was that Hojo, you know, his dad, basically told him that he was going to be the most powerful and the greatest soldier. And so he had no choice but to become that. Yeah. Well, that's such an interesting point, Cass, because what if Sephiroth wasn't this powerful? Remember, what we're doing right now is we're in Cloud's memory. Yeah. So this might be a version of Sephiroth that is Cloud's version of him, which is that he was perfect, that he knows Fire 3 and knows how to revive and starts every battle like fully ready to go and primed. So there's a little bit of unreliable narrator that we've got going on oh, here yeah. with, with Cloud as well. I mean, Cloud is like the textbook unreliable narrator. Yes. And that also confused me as a child playing this. Oh, yeah. I was like maybe 10 the first time I played it. I had no fucking clue what was going on with Cloud and Zack. I was like, what? What does does this person know him or not? I don't understand. Like what? And it just was completely muddled. But it kind of gives credit to the fact that this game is so good that I didn't even care. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, hundred percent. I don't think you need to know a lot of the story to enjoy the game. But I think the the game gets better when you do know the story. Absolutely. Versus Final Fantasy X, which I think is story forward. A great great battle system but so story forward that i think that's that's more of the reason to be there absolutely so in the flashback players control a cloud from five years ago who accompanies sephiroth to his hometown of nibelheim to investigate the sudden emergence of monsters like this weird dragon that we face out of nowhere they work with tifa who is acting as a local guide as they make their way to the reactor and inside sephiroth discovers a chamber that's labeled genova the name he was told belonged to his mother and this flashback is the first time that we hear reference for genova when they show up in town sephiroth says oh genova is my mother she died on childbirth but earlier in the game we saw that that figure that was in the tank that we said that's genova so do you remember what was going through your mind here like Oh my god, is that your mom? <laughs> oh my god, is that your mom? Ew, that's gross. <laughs> uh, well, when I first played again, I was a child, and so I think I was just ultimately confused and and scared. Um, scared, yeah. There's some scary parts here. Like, this is this is 
spooky scary. Yeah. Like, I mean, I would have nightmares. Like, I still love this game, but it was still very terrifying. And the something even more unsettling about the fact that they were, like, pixelated, but then there were moments where they would, like, twitch and, like, they would, like, Sephiroth would, like, zoom forward or zoom back and, like... This, the way they made this terrifying with such crappy graphics at the time, like is the best graphics that they could possibly have. Oh, yeah. But oh, yeah. even watching it now was very eerie. You know, thinking back to that moment of seeing Genova in the first FMV, I was just like, you know, when I started to piece it together, I was like... Was his his mother was experimented on, or he, right. you know, his mom. I had to, you know, I assumed that his mom was a human, but that something went wrong, or like, you know, she was, yeah, some type of magic or something must have changed her. And now Sephiroth has that same weird magic because he's like extra mm. strong and blah blah blah. And so that was kind of the the storyline that I followed through with. And this is where it also got muddled and confusing for me because like Tifa was there and, and we discover that Tifa like is connected to Cloud, but then not connected to Cloud maybe, or does she oh, know Zach? Yeah. And then it's like, I'm very confused. And we'll see this. We see this flashback later on too. Once we start yep. to kind of understand what's happening a little bit more, I guess. So, I like that your journey with Genova and learning this information is actually the same journey that Sephiroth goes on because still in the flashback, Sephiroth locks himself in the Shinra mansion, obsessively combs through all of the research that was done on this creature that's located in the reactor. And he discovers that Genova is a dead organism found 2000 years ago. And the report reads that Genova was confirmed as an ancient or well, what, what today we call the Cetra. He pieces together that the Genova they discovered is his mother. And he responds to cloud that he's going to go see her and he leaves to go to Genova, but on his way, he lights the town on fire, attacks Tifa's father, attacks Tifa's father, attacks Tifa, and Cloud shows up to confront Sephiroth, but that's all he remembers. And the party is like, no, like, <laughs> no, man, you didn't tell us that this, this guy one shot a dragon and you beat him in combat. No fucking way. No fucking You had way. two hit points. Like, D&D rules, you would be over dead by now. Like, more than half your hit points are gone after death. Yeah. There is no way you're coming back. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, so the story has to continue. And again, we bought this totally as, as players to say like, well, there's obviously a conflict between them. Cloud must have lived because Cloud is alive. So maybe they just shook hands and left. But... The the sequence that leads up to this sort of climactic battle it's 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 a it's a shot of Sephiroth it's a shot of Cloud it's a shot of Sephiroth and it goes faster and faster and faster until they're like on top of each other and then we just are back in calm in the inn and Cloud goes that's my story and Barrett God bless him is like no the fuck like <laughs> you tell me what happened. Or I'm not leaving. Yep. My daughter is back in that other city, and I am not going on a journey with you if I don't know what the fuck's going on. I have a child. I have a child. <laughs> Shut fine. the fuck up. <laughs> 
<clears throat> well, we go back to the party in present day, and now the stakes are set. The big bad is Sephiroth, and they've got to find him. Uh, obviously, he he's the reason all of this is happening. So on their way out of the town, the party hears something from, from a person who's just randomly in the city that someone with a black cloak went on their way this way. And that's what, what spurs the party to go, we've got to follow that black cloak. Cass, what did you think about this whole black cloak thing? This is another part that was just terrifying to me. There were just yeah. these creepy ass, zombie ass things. There were just these black cloaked figures you'd never, and like their names would just say a number. Like it yeah. would just say seven or eight. And they, you know, they're, they're saying reunion. Yeah. Um, or they're just like muttering. It's just like this yeah. gargly mess and... Oh, it was terrifying. And you would go up to them and some of them would just disappear. Or yeah. you would like, it would look like a glitch. Like you'd just be walking and then you you think you might see one somewhere. I think there's one in the sewer, in the slums too, that you think is like just like a like a drunken like homeless person. But then like he has a tattoo on his arm that says a number. And you're like, what is yeah. this? What the and hell? And now we learn that that means something but we don't really know what yet no so the group is crossing the fields and goes clue from clue eventually leading them across the ocean but aboard the ship suddenly something's wrong crew members are slaughtered in the same fashion they were at shinra headquarters and in the engine room they see sephiroth but he flies away and all of a sudden we're in our first battle with genova genova birth and we get Banging music. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. And so Cass Sephiroth appears and disappears at will. And this battle with Genova Birth almost feels like it comes out of nowhere. What did you make of this when you first played it before we knew what was really going on with Genova? Again, like, what the fuck? Why does Sephiroth keep flying at the camera and disappearing, first of all? Like, that's isn't that what he does in the first one, too? He's like in the mansion. He's like, I gotta go. And he just like, Floats up and then goes <laughs> and like shoots through the air and you're like, the fuck, man? What the why do you keep running away if you're such a big baddie? Why the fuck you keep running away from me? But also, Genova is a fucking monster and does not yeah. look anything like sh- we thought she did. And of course, later on we discover that like these are her cells that have like dropped off and like become these creatures and. You know, it only just occurred to me in the last few years that the first few iterations we see of Sephiroth in this game might not actually be him, but his mother and the fact that she is controlling him. She is a puppeteer. Um, I think they even call, in Advent Children, they call the black robe figures puppets. Um, So there's this whole, you know, that's the overarching thing, but we don't know that yet still. We still don't know. And we're like far enough in the game to where again like you talked about cloud being an unreliable narrator we we only know what he knows and he doesn't seem to know anything he doesn't seem um, to know yeah <laughs> and and everyone seems to kind of accept that like this big bad guy comes out of the floor yeah. and you're like oh no there he is <laughs> and then and then we fight this monster and we're like oh okay well that must not have really been him mm-hmm. or was it or he flew away i don't know and it's oh it's so great it is so great and wonderful and weird and that's what makes it so fun a little tidbit just because i thought about it but um originally sephiroth wasn't going to be the i i think red 13 was supposed to be more of like a clone 
villain yeah. issue in the but they decided to go with Sephiroth of course but we see Red 13 we remember that he is also some type of alien connected centric being that might have been a fiend but wasn't obviously because he's sentient right. um still a lot to be known about him too so I hope we get more of that in the in the rebirth I think that would be a lot of fun yeah but he's a fun dude well, let's let's follow him through because the next major set piece involves Red 13 because the party continues on their way, eventually getting to Cosmo Canyon where they meet Red 13's grandfather, Bugenhangen. <laughs> Definitely didn't say that right, but we'll find out how wrong I was he's just an in, old at dude. the end of February. He's just this he's lion's a, old dude grandpa. He's an old dude who floats? Yeah. Question mark. Yeah, okay, it has great. like a yeah, he has like an observatory. He's really weird and like goofy like Oh, I love him. It's it's so bizarre. <laughs> yeah. But he teaches them about the life stream and how it heals the planet from harm. That's going to be really important for us later. Mm-hmm. And if it if the life stream is removed, the planet dies and it crumbles into nothingness. And so the stakes couldn't be higher for what the group was trying to do. Not only are they worried about Shinra sucking all the life so that the lights can stay on, they're a little bit worried about Sephiroth doing something with the life stream as well, but they're not entirely sure what. And this is where I wanted to talk about music because Cosmo Canyon is a bop. Yeah, it's probably one of my favorite covers that I listen to for background music whenever I'm doing contract work or anything like that because it is, I don't know, it's motivating, it's reassuring, it's spiritual in a really deep way. What did you think about the music of Final Fantasy VII cast? I, I know that you can only listen to Fight On so many times while you're getting AP, but the music as a whole is a pretty awesome soundtrack. Uh, I'm obsessed. I yeah. I learned how to play almost every song on every instrument I possibly could. I mean, I can't do it wow. now, but like I I would like key through a piano and like play. Like I just know every note of every every piece of music. And Aerith Seam still makes me cry. Like it still mm. makes me tear up. It's just so beautiful. Um, no other Final Fantasy can 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 really get to what this game I mean all of Final Fantasy music is amazing Nobuyo Matsu is a master um, but there's something so gripping about all the music in this game and I want to give a quick shout out to um, if this is the first time you're hearing this I need you to listen to all of this after this but there is a um, I don't know I think his name is Megaran but he has a Black Materia album, and it is rap. Oh, yes, I've heard it. Yep, it's fantastic. It is so fucking yeah. good. And there's a new one for the remake, if you haven't heard that one. Ooh, I haven't. Because no. the remake music just, like, hit it out of the fucking yeah. park. It's like Cowboy Bebop, like, jazz style, but also, like, in every single song, like, every time I heard them, like, usually I don't care about, like, in new games, like, they're like, oh, find all the little albums or records around, like, oh, I was grabbing <laughs> all that shit in this game. I was like, you you have to believe I will find yeah. every single iteration of the song in this game. Um, I could just hear a clip of any any Final Fantasy VII song, and I know immediately where it is, whose theme it is, where it's from. Like, it's everything to me. <laughs> yeah. I think it's probably the best album of music. Like, I think every single song is a smash. 
And I think there are great songs across the series, truly and honestly. I think Fisherman's Horizon might be my absolute favorite Final Fantasy music. Which one is that? From Final Fantasy VIII. Oh, I, I would not be able to do it justice so in the like, way that you've been doing songs. To. No. <laughs> I, oh. It's af- it's after the garden crashes into that little town, and uh, it's just it's just a chill little beat. The acoustic guitar. Dun, yes, dun, dun, yes. Exactly. Oh, I learned how to play that on guitar too. It was yeah, so it's, it's so a, good. It's a great little. It's just just very calming, and and that's sort of unique, I think, and that's probably why it rises to the top. But I even like crossing the field from Final Fantasy Nine, which is just the overworld music. Like, I think that a lot of these songs are really really good, really really fantastic. I think. Uh, the rendition of Eunice theme that plays during the climax of Final Fantasy X is just as heartbreaking as Aerith's theme is be- for uh, very obviously similar reasons. <laughs> I also, like they're- Tommy makes fun of me because when I'm drunk sometimes, I will just turn on, um, I learned all of the songs uh, from Final Fantasy X and X-2 the Japanese oh, like versions. Oh, like of the Faith and stuff? Yeah, I yeah. know all of the words to all of those songs. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Wow! And I will just drunkenly sing them. I know all yeah, of. Gonna... I have the uh, Final Fantasy Ten Two album too, and I know all of those songs too. 10 okay, well, Ten Two. We can't. We can't even start because that's a different type of mother. And uh, Yuna is maybe that that'll mother, be the sequel so. to this. Genova and then Yuna. It's a. It's and a straight Yuna. shot from Genova to Yuna. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Well, once we get past Cosmo Canyon and the absolute bops that are there, the group finds themselves back at a very much not burned down Nibelheim. And throughout the town, people are in these black capes. These are This is where the Uki factor gets turned up to 11. Mm-hmm. Um, the party goes down to the basement of Shindra Mansion and they encounter Sephiroth, who mentions that Genova is bringing others together. And we first hear about the reunion and a glimpse into the idea that there's something between Cloud and Sephiroth that is a little bit more than Cloud wanting to save the world. There's something deeper. Uh, it, it almost reads as intimate and I don't want to communicate that in like a shipping way. Uh, obviously I've already said that it's, it's Tifa and cloud, uh, but there it's, it's definitely more than rivalry. It's something deep. Mm-hmm. So what were your thoughts on Sephiroth? We've, we've talked about people who are big Sephiroth fans. We obviously you've got a cute little statue of Sephiroth who has joined us for the record. Um, what he's a, He's scary, right? Like, yes, but he's a, also hot. He's scary. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. Many many things that scare us are also It's attractive. true. I mean, I honestly, though, this was like one of my first like... Crushes? Yeah, like Sephiroth wow. is hot and androgynous and just like yeah. a beautiful like creature. And But I also thought Tifa was hot. So like, you know, this yeah. is where I was well, like, okay, Tifa's hot. Yeah. Sephiroth's hot. You know, like, I, this was just like, okay, great. Um, there's a whole bunch of beautiful people I'm in love with in this game. Um, yeah. <laughs> so not only was I in love with him, but also terrified by him and the, his, like, mania. Like, it, like yeah. I didn't know what was going on in his mind. But I could tell that something had changed. Even though I didn't understand it in the story at this time. And now mm. we have all of this backstory, you know, now that he was an experiment he did not have a normal childhood he did not get to have a mother figure in a sense of one actually being there or know who his real mother was like but he held an image when he was a soldier he had a photo of lucretia that he called genova like he he thought 
he thought he knew his mother's name was Genova, but he thought it was he thought he saw a picture of Lucretia and thought it was her. So like, yeah, well, it's he wild. was that'll fuck a guy up. Yeah, yeah, and then you know you think your mom's one thing, and it's not just that you don't have a mom, or you find the you know in like real life we talk about like finding out you're adopted or something. Like it's kind of yeah. like that, but it's like your no, your mom's a fucking alien. Like a literal yeah, alien. A little, little bit, little bit further. This is a little bit further. Yeah, yeah, 100%. a little bit further than that. <laughs> but listen, Cass, we all like a project, and so we can fix Seffy. Like we really could <laughs> with enough time. Like we could make it happen. I right? think Cloud could do it. Yeah, like Cloud could do you it. know. Well, I don't know. He's pretty fucked up too. We'll yeah. see. Somebody <laughs> can blindly do it. to the blind a little bit away. Well, the party moves on and makes their way eventually to the Temple of Ancients, where a mural re- reveals how Genova came to the planet. And the ancients locked away that power in the temple itself. So in order to summon Meteor and damage the planet, someone would have to turn the temple back into the Black Materia. And Cloud and company figure out how to do it, and they do it so that they can have the Black Materia, and Sephiroth won't be able to get his hands on it. But after they do so, Cloud loses his willpower and hands the Black Materia over to Sephiroth in one of the scenes that Cass has talked about, where Cloud is like glitching out. He's not in control. You control a child version of Cloud who runs at the adult Cloud but can't stop him. Wow, what was going You're on? You're like here? literally, it's, it's again, one of those like moments you cannot forget in a video game your first time playing it. Kind of like um, the only other game I could really think of that did something very similar was, and I didn't even play this game all the way through, I just know it from like me watching countless hours of X-Play and, like, all those other shows as a kid, like, (laughs) loving video games, but, like, Metal Gear Solid, where it would mindfuck you. Like, you would have to, like, put the controller in a different slot or, like, take the memory card out or do something that was not actually in the game. Like, something you physically were doing outside of the game was somehow manipulating the game in a way that was different than just interacting with it on a normal level. And that's how this was. It was, like... Your your character isn't obeying you, and you're like, "Fuck right. no, fuck no! What are you doing, Cloud? Stop it! Stop! Tra- what are you doing? What are you yeah. doing?" And you're just like thrashing the controller, trying to get him to stop. It, and it took a yeah. long time. Like it, it does. It was a long ass quickly. moment. <laughs> yeah, and it it does have that very I have no mouth and must scream experience because something that you've been in control of the whole time, you now have nothing, and you just have to watch it unfold mm-hmm. in. If not, if not like scary, I'm screaming terror, at least existential terror, because we've told you what the stakes are if Sephiroth gets his hands on the black materia. It was gut wrenching. I thought I fucked yeah. up. I was like, okay, yeah. save scum. Like, can we, can we go back and do this over? Like, there's got to be another way to do this. But it, that's when it clicks, right? Is that yeah. cloud, cloud has these cells. Cloud, cloud is, cloud is part of this. And that is why he is so distraught and confused because his yeah. will is not his own anymore. Um, yeah. And we, we get that actually said to him by Sephiroth in the next set piece because the party r- rushes North because Aerith has gone after Sephiroth to stop him. The party is going to try to support her. They find her praying, but before they can reach her, she's killed by Sephiroth. And he tells cloud that cloud is just a puppet. And the party then goes into battle with Genova life. And instead of getting that great Genova music, we play a battle against a major boss under 
Aerith's theme after we have just watched her die and been taunted by Sephiroth for it. Uh, <laughs> after the battle, the party puts Aerith to rest and that concludes disc one. So the first thing I want to talk about, Cass, is Aerith's death is probably one of the most famous events in video games. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you first encountered this and how it felt to have the stakes raised so high, uh, not just for the planet, not just for Avalanche and Shinra, but for these people who cared about this character. I'm going to say something really controversial right now. Please remember that I was a 10-year-old the very first time I played this game. I hated Eris the first time I played <gasps> this. Okay, okay. Well, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of validity there. I thought she was just annoying. I, I The fact yeah. that she was so presumptuous and like quirky just annoyed me. I was like, why does she think that she's the cutest and that she gets to be Cloud's girlfriend? What about Tifa? Like, yeah. What is going on here? Like, what what did Tifa do? Like, what what is happening? I was just, I was just so frustrated by I Cloud like shafting Tifa this whole time, his childhood friend. Yeah. And this girl just shows up and is like the best thing in the world. And I just didn't get it. And so when she died, it clicked for me like how important it was but all the way up to that point i never used her in my party i was like she's annoying i want tifa i want to learn those yeah. ko combos i don't give a Hell fuck yeah <laughs> yeah that's uh that's amazing i i also didn't use Aerith a lot the game of course forces you to use her in the temple of agents which was a frustrating time for all of us mm -hmm. uh, especially if you were a heavy melee player and hadn't really explored the magic system which i think is like a younger gamer experience that i've heard a lot of people talk about and but the but i will tell you the narrative gives it to you kind of no matter what you did with Aerith. if you've explored a lot cloud rushes up to her lifeless body and is is sad is mad and then is told by the main antagonist that those feelings aren't real and wow nothing nothing makes a feeling deeper than somebody telling you it's not real yeah i mean it I don't need, I don't know how long it took me to put that next disc in, but like Ooh. you're just kind of sitting there like and, and again, a game where you're playing a you've played this character theoretically, not me who did not have her in her party the first time, but you know, I did all those times after and realized obviously like you've got to have a healer in your main party. Like what the fuck yeah, am I doing? Yeah. But anyway, um fix that mistake. Uh but before that not many games had that moment where you're a vital part of your party is taken from you and you cannot, you cannot use a Phoenix down on that bitch. You cannot come back to life after that. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, I, I really don't think there are many other um, feelings like that. The stakes were very high. They were raised very quickly yeah. and very, and, and that was taken away from you. And it just, the fact that her music played during that entire mm. battle was so cruel. Oh. Um, Heart-wrenching. And Jenova's just fucking flailing around because her little <laughs> tentacles are just flailing around. <laughs> That's the other thing about Jenova is like, you're fighting all these creatures, um, but nothing is as weird and alien and strange as Jenova is in that game. All the other creatures yeah. kind of resemble some other fantasy creature we've seen before. You know, you've got your characteristic Final Fantasy characters like the bombs or like the gel you know all those things yeah. but a literal alien 
Um, yes. And very, very off-puttingly created. These giant wing-like apparatuses, the tentacles, the head is sort of xenomorphy. Mm-hmm. It, it really does give you an unsettling vibe. Yeah, absolutely. Well, once that disc does eventually get back in, we move on to Act 2, which is the party making their way towards the northern crater where Sephiroth has made it clear he awaits Cloud. And they they need to go settle the score because it's not to be cliche, but now it's like personal. So we, we have to go take care of this. On the way to the Great Glacier that will lead them to the northern crater, the group stops in the northernmost town of the world, Icicle Inn, which is where they find the lab of Professor Gast. And Cast, this is the time to talk more about the Shinra Scientific Corps, if we've got anything else to say. We've got Gast, who's the father of Aerith, Lucretia and Hojo, who were the biological parents of Sephiroth. These these folks all had this intertwined relationship that gets explored so much more in Crisis Core, but we get so much of it here in Icicle Inn. We get the video diaries from Gast. We learn about the betrayal of Hojo. We learn about Aerith being born. There's so much to digest here, and it's all optional. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, I... When the first time I played this, I had no idea what was oh, yeah, going on. Just... I was more interested in the snowboarding game. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, whatever. I'm fucking snowboarding. I don't give a shit about this. Like, this is like Christmas era episode. Like, this is like the little winter, you know, little vacation spot. It was a lot. Uh, yeah, And it's it very disturbing, to be quite honest. I mean, Hojo is a filthy individual. He is a terrifying person. He never... Uh, I mean, he's like kind of like your stereotypical mad scientist in a way, but it's even darker than that. I mean, nothing, no one to him has a, you know, he's the father of Sephiroth and, you know, he obviously wasn't in love with Lucretia or had any sort of romantic affiliation with anyone. Everything was about experimentation to him. Right. And power. And um, he loved to see the experiment not just experimenting on the bodies but like watching them suffer and watching them interact and seeing the way that they would uh fail one another or you know see what would happen to their minds if if things were revealed Mm. to them and he seemed to get a delight in torturing sephiroth and i couldn't imagine Though I would love to see um, his childhood more, and and mm. what Sephiroth what hated Hojo, yeah. he hated him. Mm. Um, yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, like I, I can't, I can't recall if he knew until you know he probably didn't know until he got to the this, uh, to the mansion that Hojo was his father technically, right? But he definitely right. did not revere him he did revere ghast he he does have good things to say about ghast which is ironic because that's eris's father um yeah and eris and eris Aerith and sephiroth have a very interesting relationship too because it seems like sephiroth was fed this idea that he wasn't ancient or that he was Right, but then we also discover that that's not true either. That his mother not. is not an ancient. She was the one that right. killed the pretender. Them. Yeah, she yeah. was a pretender, and um, 
everything just keeps coming at him as a lie. And it does not forgive anything that this man has ever done because he's awful. But it's obvious that he feels like he has a connection to Aerith. And it's like yeah. he wants to see that there there is a connection and similarities between them. Not having known who their real parents were. Um, I mean, Aerith was given to uh, her mother in... Um, Midgar because of Falna died. Um, If I recall, did she like die right out of the train station? She died at the exact same spot that Tifa finds Cloud after Zack and Cloud make their way to Midgar. That was weird. That was, I remember like a little baby Aerith like, mom, like, yeah, I don't know. No one's like paying attention to her. They're just like, whatever. Like, yeah. And that, that is, that is, there is nice synergy between Sephiroth and Aerith because in, in ways it, it's like they're siblings mm-hmm. because of the closeness of these scientists, really. It, they're, they're born out of this like weird thruple plus Genova. Uh, yeah, there's you know, this it, incestuous, <laughs> like scientific incestuousness going yeah, on. Yeah, and yeah. sometimes I even think like, and then Vincent's thrown in there. Vincent was in love with Lucretia, which is Sephiroth's mom. Yeah. And then Vincent himself is also experimented on is un essentially like a fucking vampire. Like yeah. is, is kind of what I used to think he was. He's not really anymore, but like he has this vampire esque and he comes out of a coffin. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's got the motif. He's, he's at least cosplaying as a vampire. Exactly. If he's not 100% there. <laughs> yeah. Well, once we learn all of this about the scientific community, uh, the group heads into the northern crater and they encounter clone after clone after clone who are all heading to the reunion. The party continues onward, eventually encountering another vision of Sephiroth and a battle ensues with Genova death. Once the battle concludes, the party retrieves the black materia. Cloud trusts it with one of his friends, uncertain what would happen if he kept it for himself. But as he and Tifa continue forward, they start to see illusions. They're back in Nibelheim. Sephiroth shows them the events that Cloud relayed to the group, but it isn't Cloud of the memories. Instead, it's a man named Zack. Cloud writes this off as Sephiroth's trickery, but Tifa admits it's true. Cloud wasn't the one who came with Sephiroth back to Nibelheim. It was Zack. And this is our huge twist of the game. Cloud isn't who he says he is. What's happening here? Dude, I had no <laughs> fucking clue. Like, <laughs> let's easily mask this by saying, like, Zach is Cloud's friend, and both of them were in the same circumstance, but, like, Cloud is just a little more fucked up than Zach is, and his brain yeah. just couldn't handle it. And it, so, but yeah. that's kind of what really happened. I mean, that's, that's kind of what we learned <laughs> in the end. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's close to what we learned. But when you see this in this moment, it looks like it looks like Zach is just a palette swap of Cloud. Yeah, he's got. I mean, they all go to the same soldier haircuttery apparently, <laughs> because all they can do is spike, spiky boy, and. And he's holding the Buster Sword, which we know is Cloud's because it's iconic to him. It's on the cover art. And this is one of those things that you start to be like, who's telling the truth? Is it Cloud or is it Tifa? Who do I trust here in this moment? But we don't get a lot of time to digest it because immediately after this reveal, Cloud and Tifa are suddenly teleported uh, to the center of an area that's teeming with Mako and Materia. And several members of Shinra are here excited that they found the promised land. 
And Hojo reveals that Cloud was one of his experiments. And so he must be here for the reunion. But upon seeing him, he goes, oh, you're a reject. You're a failed experiment. How did you get here? And Cloud becomes depressed. I'm a failed experiment. I don't remember what I think I remember. And so in depression, he like flies up and hands Sephiroth the black materia that he's retrieved from from the friend that he trusted it with. And... Now that he's given Sephiroth the Black Materia, the planet is in danger. The natural defense systems of the planet, these monstrous weapons awaken. The whole place starts to collapse and Shinra and company take the party and they flee on the airship. And this is an incredible, incredible climactic set piece that really starts off the journey that Act 2 takes us on. Absolutely. Like the the opening up of the world map even further. Like you you, yeah. you didn't think it could get any better than just being a little dude on the giant Ugh. map. But now you're an airship and you can f- go way faster. You you now have access to even more areas than you did before. I mean, I'm going to go there too, but then you get a freaking submarine. Yeah. That will let you go underwater. Like these are these are standbys of the series, right? And because it's had this open world element, getting an airship sort of represents ultimate mobility mm-hmm. uh, throughout the series that has come so far. And this is another thing that you think about Final Fantasy's ten on forward. The ability to use an airship exists, but you don't get to control it in the way that we're controlling it here, which is this sort of even even when it was in sixteen bit, we were using type zero graphics, which was like wild at the time to do and so it it does feel so much more open you're absolutely right that it used to terrify me too um the way you would crash into a area and then you would go into the like 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 a giant building on the map and you'd have to touch it with your airship and then it would take you into the new area i remember like nearly shitting my pants the first time I ran into a weapon underneath the water and it just activated and started oh, yeah. coming at me. Holy fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it that that definitely underwater is spectacular. It, it it the underwater has a great theme. It's very I would say very calming except for everything that's happening. Yes. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. Well, Tiva takes leadership because she says, I've got to find my friend Cloud. And the party explores all the new areas that are available because they have the airship. So the player is like told, now that you can fly anywhere, you should go to the places you couldn't reach before. And they go to Medeal where they find Cloud. But he showed up there because the life stream sort of deposited him there. And because he's been exposed to so much of it, he now has Mako poisoning. And Tifa is committed to stay with him even though he's in this catatonic state. When a weapon attacks Medeal, the ground opens up and Cloud and Tifa are washed away into that very life stream. And this is perhaps where I'm most, I guess, anxious of what's still to come with the remake. Because in this moment, we use the fact that the graphics are weird to tell the story of what it means to be in the life stream. Tifa, for a little while, is just in a black area all by herself with all these weird sound effects that we haven't heard for a while. Um... The, the polygon of cloud in his memory is floating above us and you don't even know it's cloud until you start to see it. It's just sort of a weird polygon overlay. And I wonder, um, I, I, maybe do you share the anxiety that maybe some of these abstract concepts will be a little bit harder now that we're going for like a super realism in the, in the retelling? That's a good point. We haven't really gotten to see this part 
this yeah. this Twin Peaks David Lynchian part That's, of uh, Final Fantasy Seven. You know, like I need David Lynch to just come in and like make this part because there's no one who can do it any better. Sometimes yeah. this is where the older graphics even better serve that surrealness and creepiness because you just can't get that. Right. That's why like there's some 80s movies like horror movies that are just oh yeah way more terrifying than normal like today's graphics because it just cannot get the same type of intensity even to the point where when clouds in the wheelchair and it's just squeaking oh oh i love this squeak i mean it's unsettling it's so unsettling uh, but like i'm just curious as to how they're going to do that right yeah I, I'm, I'm not i wouldn't say i'm anxious um okay because i do think that the first it iteration did did tell me that like especially with the whispers we can do creepy creepy well Mm -hmm. and i think this is going to be creepy done well i really hope they they eat i hope that they play into the creepiness um yeah i don't that that is a scary that that is a moment to think about though because like when graphics get better there's a hesitation to go as dark and as explicit because it's sometimes too real Right, like, yeah, um, Genova's decapitated head, like all that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, I want to see it. Then. I, I, see I it. do too. So and this cool. new, like, in the in the newer one, we have this Genova nightmare creature manifestation. I mean, there, there. That was that was pretty good. Yeah, that was, pretty good. So, that was an unsettling battle. That was the moment I was like, okay, may, maybe they we are going to keep be doing that. This right. It's just going to look a little different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tifa finds herself in Cloud's memory, and Tifa is trying to reconcile who Cloud is, because we're really worried that Cloud, now that he's realized who Genova is, I'm just a replica, I'm just sucking your memories away, I'm not even real. But Tifa remembers a Cloud that she grew up with, and they start to sort of reconcile, but everything Tifa remembers, Cloud says, well, I just just stole that from you. There's nothing I remember that you don't, until suddenly he reveals that there's something that he remembers that she doesn't, that he was in places that Tifa didn't remember being. And we get the climax that Zach was the soldier who came with Sephiroth to Nibelheim, but he wasn't alone. A Shinra guard was with them. And that Shinra guard under his helmet was Cloud. Zach was defeated by Sephiroth, but Cloud prevailed and ejected him into the life stream. And that, is the truth that we are left with that resolves Cloud's identity. Cass, it is, I mean, it's it's almost emotional to speak about because it is it is probably the emotional climax to Cloud's story in such a significant way. And I think for Tifa Cloud shippers like you and I are, it it is their love. The way to love someone when they don't know who they are is sort of a pure love. And to help them find themselves is a great expression. How did this hit you? It's just beautiful. I will say yeah. again, though, the first time I played it, no idea what the fuck. <laughs> no was idea happening. what's going on. <laughs> Which of these people do I need to talk I still, to to get back? To yeah, battle? I still <laughs> didn't get what was going on. I was like, "Wait, he was there? What? What?" Yeah. And then you know, yeah, it just took me a few more iterations to realize, and that's why I kept playing it because, again. At a different age of my life, I understood it better. Not only because yeah. I just had more brain cells, but like I I could understand the relationships better. And yeah. um this this was another thing that I was thinking of with like the translation. I was watching a few things before, you know, we started to podcast and 
Um, there's a word in Japanese that is used to describe, that Tifa uses to describe Cloud, um, not only as her childhood friend, but like, you know, mm, it something was... Something more. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's very obvious that that is the case, even when I was young, that she adored him. And yeah. it never was Zach for Tifa. It really was Cloud. No. Um, no. And they do have a history, and 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 I think that's why no matter what she, the fact that Cla- I think that just like Tifa is the binding reality. She is the one that yeah. is able to bring him back to the reality, even though he refuses to see it. It's his own selfishness, and I remember a lot. I remember like being so mad at Cloud all the time for how like kind of cruel he was to Tifa because he just refused to believe her. But I think it's not his selfishness. It's his um it's uncertainty, his insecurity. Depression maybe. really. Like it's yeah, like he yeah. is the manifestation of like depression in some ways. Yeah. Like he just doesn't know how to identify with anyone. And he's afraid. He's afraid of connecting to anybody. And I think yeah. that's what makes him feel connected to Aerith at first because it's like this new, like she, she's a stranger that just kind of, you know, it is nice that she like connects to him for having not completely known him, you know, saying, Oh, you're going to be my bodyguard. Like, and just grabs onto him and just takes him, you know, but Tifa is, has always been there. And Tifa has always attempted to keep him grounded. Um, And that's why I'm a Tifa cloud shipper. And... I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, now that the party's all back together, they have to figure out how to stop Meteor because it's coming. And they go to meet with Bugenhagen, who who tells them that there is a way that they can save the planet, but it's it's super rare. It's this spell called Holy that would have been passed down from ancient to ancient. And the group says, wow, maybe Aerith had it. Well. Um, and they... Well... <laughs> And they find out that that's true. Aerith did have it, and that's why she was praying at the time of her death. And in fact, she was successful at summoning Holy, but something's stopping it. And they find out that that's something. It's Sephiroth. He's at the planet's core, stopping Holy from saving them, because he wants Meteor to punish the planet so he can suck up all the life stream and become powerful. And here's where we get into an area debate that I think is really important for the topic of our conversation. It's Genova's modus operandi to drain the life of the planet. That's what Genova does. But Sephiroth's will is too powerful to be absorbed. They are a new creature. And so I wanted to ask you, what is this? Is it Genova who's become Sephiroth? Sephiroth that's become Genova? What's going on here? I think it's like a perfect amalgamation of the two. Yeah. Because... Yeah, they sort of exist in sort of like a a synergy. Yes. Like, it is a new creature. Like, it's... Yeah. And I say creature because Sephiroth has this perception of Genova this entire time. Um, And this gets into, like, you know... Our, our thoughts on on mothers in some way that we all have a perception of our mother, and when that perception is uh, distilled or broken, uh, it can really hurt you, and it can mm. really affect you. But Sephiroth takes it to a level um, where it's not only just his perception of what his mother was. It, it's not that he just thought his mother was like a good woman, 
and was like a great mom, you know, it's like my mom, no, my mom was a God. My mom, my mom was a divine entity that was supposed to bring people to the promised land that was supposed to save the world. And in his mind, he is a God, which is why we get this God form of Sephiroth that is literally hurling planets and you know Genova would suck the life out of planets and use them to you know travel the galaxy in some way Sephiroth is using planets as a weapon yeah to destroy another planet and now he has a wing like those manifestations that his mother had this one winged angel this divine it's like this it's like this twisted like combination of scientific versus like religion sort of thing going on. Like it's like this alien has become not just another creature from another planet, but a literal divine entity. And yeah. I'm part it's like of it now. Deification. Yeah, hundred percent. I totally agree. And it's this power hungry nature, I think, that fuels his will and why he remains unabsorbed from this creature who's absorbed we we don't know how long this has been going on maybe billions in their lifetime mm-hmm. well all things must come to an end and now that the party is, is all back together now that we know where the threat is coming from now that we know we have to go confront sephiroth the party makes their trek into the northern crater as they descend they have a series of battles first with genova synthesis all of the cells that have come together for a reunion have created something new. And in this iteration of Genova, not only do we get a different character model, that's this much, much different blobby figure with tentacles and a a head, which we haven't seen from Genova in quite some time, but we get different music. The music is remixed for the fight with Genova Synthesis. And again, it is, I mean, this is a terrifying fight. It's a terrifying creature. And the music tells you, you need to be afraid because this thing's going to wipe you out. It's a fucking bop and you need to be scared. It is a a bop and you should be scared. Then they fight a complicated amalgamation of Genova and Sephiroth in the form of Bizarro Sephiroth. Then finally, the battle with one wing angel himself, Safer Sephiroth. And in this final battle, you mentioned this cast, but Sephiroth attacks the party by bringing an asteroid or meteor into the sun and the resulting explosion gets close enough to them to damage the party. And uh, I, I took this literally the first time I played it, but today I read it differently. How do you read this besides that it just looks fucking awesome? I don't know. How do you read this? Because all Ooh. I remember is how fucking cool it was. And then also like the the names of all the planets. Like we needed to yeah. know which planets were coming at <laughs> us like Jupiter. This, this destroyed <laughs> Jupiter. Don't worry about it. Yeah, because it can be used multiple times and because it doesn't actually burn the planet that we're living on. Uh, I have now come to interpret this as almost a type of psychic damage that's being done to the party and that this is more the memory or the the thought of what Genova can do and has done more than it's doing it to this party on this planet. I love that um, and I agree wholeheartedly with it and it made me remember yeah. that way back 
Lucretia, Sephiroth's mom, used to have nightmares of what her son was going to do to the yeah. world. So it's kind of the same type of thing. It's like she was plagued by the fact that her unborn child was going to destroy the world. And now her, yeah. he has the same ability to like psychically, you know, terrify or paralyze people. So yeah. I like that. I, it's cool. I also like my headcanon because then the planet we're on doesn't have to be Earth. It can just be that Earth was destroyed by Genova, and we're using that memory to damage the party on this planet, wherever it is. But also, it's kind of cool to be like, my characters are now level 99, and I can take as much power as possible. You can throw a fucking <laughs> five, you know, a whole bunch of planets at me, and I still didn't take enough damage. Yeah. Nova, son, bitch, come at me. <laughs> Except that it can also turn you into a frog, which is also a little... But if you got Knights of the Round, you can just... 100%. 100%. Give it right yeah, back to sh- him. Listen, as long as you have been feeding some chocobos carob nuts, you should be fine right now. What's your problem? <laughs> but even though they defeat Safer Sephiroth, Sephiroth's mind and will persist. So Cloud has to go in and have a final confrontation. And this is where we get probably uh, young Cass, young David, formative, important shirtless Sephiroth in just pants moment. You want to stand there and look at them. Cloud instantly gets an Omni slash, but you're, you're not ready to push it because you're kind of enjoying the, the show. If you wait too long, Seph attacks you and you counterattack him and kill him, mm-hmm. which is really a shame. You, you have to pause it if you want to enjoy the show. <laughs> um, but he does so. The Holy is finally free. It bonds to the life stream right before the meteor is about to destroy all life and the game ends. We get credits. In the post credit scene that's set 500 years later, we see Red 13 with his progency running towards the ruins of Midgar, populated with animals, but no humans. And Cass, I alluded to this earlier, but how did you read the ending? Because Bugenhagen tells us that Holy will wipe out anything it perceives as a threat to the planet, Meteor, and maybe even because of the actions of Shinra, humans themselves. I think it goes directly back to the beginning of the game with our, you know, quote unquote, like eco terrorists or, you know, our avalanche party. That is, that's all, that's all it was from the beginning. And that's something that my, my 10 year old mind could wrap around. Um, This idea of just like technology destroying the planet and the planet fighting back. And the live stream was always this good green energy that the ancients would, I I always imagined in my mind that the agent the ancients were sort of like druidic. They were very yeah, much they would in tune it. with yeah the yeah. earth, um, and those those weird little wizard guys in the in the in the hut. Also, a great <clears throat> mini game that took forever trying to figure out which yeah. hole to pop oh out gosh. of. Yeah. Um, also, one of my favorite songs, the Temple of the Agents song, is so yeah. good. But um. That I could, that was like one theme that I always understood was that like, we're turning the earth to its, its, its original state and yeah. humans weren't possibly a part of that. So well, I, I, I love the ambiguity of the ending and, and this is sort of, this is where the retconning of having advent children even exist sort of throws me off a little bit because I think that not knowing what happens to Holy is one of the strengths of this ending. Did Holy say, hey, you know what? Rufus Shinra sucked dry part of this planet. And I say, fuck all these guys. I'm killing them. 
Or did Holy see the actions of Cloud and company and say there's salvation here? They're, the children like Marlene deserve a better world and I'm going to preserve them. And we don't get that answer. And I think that's really frustrating to some people. But to me, I love it because sometimes you don't get to know. The story is over and this is where we're at. I agree. I, I love yeah. the ambiguity oh. of it. Um I don't think I realized it was that ambiguous when I was a child. I just, you know, <laughs> thought this was like this wonderful circle of life Lion King moment. Um, but yeah, looking back on that moment and not seeing anything other than Red 13 and and the and his children yeah. um it makes you wonder. It makes you wonder makes what you wonder. else is happening. So, yeah. Wow. Wow. So much that we've gone over here. We, we have talked through a 40-hour game. We've talked about Genova, but I want to touch on some of the themes that we've gone through. So, so first we talked about Genova being such an interesting figure because Genova was, Genova cells were injected directly into the fetus that would become Sephiroth. Both Lucretia and Genova are part of his mother. And so the question I wanted to ask for both of us is, does being a mother have more to do with who or does having a mother have more to do with who you came from or how they shaped you because those are the two facets that we're looking at here for Seth I think in my life uh when I think about mother figures in my life they're impactful because of what they did for me along the way and who I was shaped into more than the person I came from I think it's a little of, yeah, I mean, I see that with any, not just mother figure, but like family, um, especially in my life, that they're a family that I'm related to that I want nothing to do with because they Same. have not shaped me in a way that I feel good about um, yeah. or have attempted to shape me in a way that I don't feel good about. But even withstanding that, um, my relationship with my own mother um my mom is only 18 years older than me. She had me when she was in high school, so she was very yeah. young. Um, and sometimes she's more even a sister to me. A peer, yeah. So, um, but even so, there are things that I feel like as she has gotten older and I've gotten older, um, we've been able to, like, evolve more than that kind of sisterhood into a true, like, mother-child sort of relationship. Um, it's one of those things, of course, like, you know, there's always those reverse psychology moments where they do one thing yeah. and you want to do the exact opposite. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but what's really exciting is when you do that and they are proud of you for doing yeah. that. For, doing, and, for being different, and, for evolving. And realizing that they in some way helped shape that, but also, you know, stepping aside and allowing you to be your own individual and your own entity um, that is separate from them. Because yeah. very similar to what we see with Genova and Sephiroth, um, they aren't entirely distinct from one another. There's right. this obsession right. to please Genova um, like many people have with their parents to please them, um, that ends up making them follow the same like circles of existence and the same um, patterns and behaviors. Oh yeah, 
Uh, wow, you're almost talking like an edible thing here where, where we try to run from fate, but only run towards it. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think that's part of the, one of the flaws of Sephiroth is that he, yeah. he thinks that it's a good thing that he's becoming this powerful entity, but really he's just following but, the same fate as Genova and being destroyed yeah. by it. So that's a good read Cass. That's a, <laughs> that's a real man. Th- this is like Greek tragedy shit now. Uh, that's incredible. I mean, we did say the scientists were incestuous, so it was coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, Genova is also a virus that eats up healthy planets and uses a diabolical ability to fool all intelligent life. And so the uh, question I, I want to ask mostly because I want to talk about it is are mothers destructive, Cass? Yeah. 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 I think they oh. are. Uh, yeah. I think sometimes intentionally and sometimes not intentionally. I agree. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think just like Genova, there, there is a very nature of motherhood that can lend itself to destruction when we place ourselves as, as being over-involved or over-committed to making our children's lives be something that they, they, they aren't destined to be and sort of exerting that influence in and of itself is very destructive and painful and, and hard to recover from. And that's where a lot of, I think, fractured familial relationships come from. And, and to your point as well, which I think is also echoed in this game, um, you spoke of, you know, mother figures that aren't biologically related to you, but the yeah. ones that influence you the most are perhaps the ones that aren't. And yeah. while I have a great relationship with my mother, you know, we have our differences and there are definitely times when we get frustrated with one another. Um, and she's definitely said some things that have been destructive that have made me go, why the fuck would you say that? You know? Right. <laughs> um, but I've had other figures in that, in that space that aren't related to me that have, that have shaped that. And so have um, many of the characters in this game. We have, yeah. Many people who have a mother figure that they are aware of, but that they're raised by someone else. Many, right. many. Not even just Ifalna and, and Aerith with, um, can't remember that poor lady's name, but Aerith's mom's, the, the woman that I, takes her. I believe it's Elmira. That's right, Elmira. Crazy ass name. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, because there's like, there's a Y in there. I need everyone to know. but that, like That's, that's why a, it's, it's weird. Yeah. yeah, it's a weird name. So, I mean, she's a great mom. She's just, yeah. she's just a great mom taking care of her. There's um, Barrett. 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 Barrett has a mother figure role because he's raising Dine's daughter. Uh, we didn't even get to talk about that entire side part of this. Yeah. Uh, but there, there is so much child rearing that we do get to see in this game which is also a bit unique for a for a final fantasy game because even when you have children they're they're children in in sprite appearance only you don't you don't look at realm and think this is a six-year-old girl you think like oh fuck she can do some damage with the paintbrush like let's go (laughs) oh also not to go down a hole the rabbit hole but all these flashback scenes we see of cloud and his mom and how annoyed yeah. he was with his mom because all of his mom wanted him to do was to settle down with a little girl and not go out and be a soldier. And again, we're, we, we have a lot of parental figures in this game. Um, yeah. Lucretia, poor Lucretia. I want to know why she wasn't able to get involved with Sephiroth. You know, obviously that was Hojo's doing, but yeah. it would have been very interesting to see 
you know, what could have been if she had been there for Sephiroth all along. Because she was a gentle, she was a gentle woman, but she definitely had a lot of um, uh, problems. <laughs> yeah. Well, and remember, because she was injected with Genova cells, she's part Genova. And mm-hmm. that's why she's living in this strange waterfall cave separated from everyone else because she knows the power that's inside of her because of these experiments. Yeah. Everyone's got a little bit of Genova in them. Well, then ultimately we're to the final question of the podcast cast, which is, is Genova our mother? Are there things to look at here that remind us of, of mother figures in our lives that as, as perhaps queer audiences look to this, is there something to admire or hold ourselves to? Uh, and I'll, I'll just start with you on, on answering the question, is Genova our mother? Well, at first I was going to say no, because she's terrifying and (laughs) I don't want to, you know, every it's, but what's funny is that there's always the joke that we all become our mother, uh, which literally happens to Sephiroth. Literally happens to (laughs) Sephiroth. Yeah. So, um, and maybe there's a terror, maybe that's part of, you know, our, all of our fears of doing that, of not Mm. just becoming our parental figures, but, um, following so closely in their footsteps that we make the same mistakes you know that's a good read yeah and and them and them telling us maybe maybe accepting the fact that we do the opposite or being angry that we're different from them especially with the our queer audience um being afraid of them being afraid of that them being afraid of us uh and not knowing what to do about that um, yeah, is... I don't, I don't, I don't know that I would, I would call Genova our mother in the way that I've, I've thought of other folks that we've covered on the podcast as sort of these examples or pillars that we might turn to if there's no one in our real lives that fills this duty, but there's a fictional character that we can, we can sort of hang an ideal onto. But I do think that there's, there's worthy exploration that's done in the service of figuring out what it means to have fate, what it means to fight against fate, which is, I think, a universally queer experience to be told to be one way and told that's the only way you can be and then push back against that. And that's the narrative of this story. And in that way, I do think that Genova representing the antagonism is very fitting for audiences who might need a figure like that to look at. Absolutely. And I, and I think yeah. part of even my own experience in fighting back that um, it's hard and it's scary, but sometimes, just sometimes, um, you can break through. Uh, I mean, my own mother probably doesn't entirely understand uh, my queer perspective or what, what I'm doing with my life, but she loves me and yeah. she um, is figuring it out. And I think the fact that that stems from a similar experience she had with her mother. And I think actually in, in my own, in my own experience, the fact that she is younger, I think has helped. Yeah. Help that a little bit. We're a little bit closer. I think the fact that we started out as sort of like siblings rather than, you know, mother, daughter, uh, when I, you know, when I was younger, I think, might have changed that a bit so yeah 
Well, this has certainly been a ripe and important conversation. So thank you so much again, Cass, for suggesting and, and talking with me about this gene splicing reunion planner from Final Fantasy VII. Cass, if folks want to hear more from you about Star Wars, Star Trek, or they want to see your high scores from mini games at the Golden Saucer, where can they find you online? I'm No, I'm going to be doing that squat mini game. That's what I'm yeah. doing. I'm going to burn my thighs up in them squats. Uh, or maybe not. Um, but online, you can find me at uh, Cassie Thulu on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, and then Distant Echoes SW is Tommy and I's um, Star Wars podcast that is connected to the uh, Glitterjaw universe that I'm so happy to be part of. Well, I do recommend folks check it out. It's been a few months since Halloween, but uh, no better place to start than going back and celebrating our beefy, beefy friend, uh, Darth Maul. You need another, like, sexy, weird villain, just like Sephiroth to, you know? Could you imagine the two of them meeting? Oh, my God. Hey, Cass, a couple of episodes uh, after this one comes out, it'll be Valentine's Day. We could talk about Darth Maul again. Heck yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I know I'd like to give my heart away. (laughs) Well, as for me, I've been your host, David Arnold. You can find me almost anywhere as DMUMA online. That's D-M-U-M-A. And if you want more of me, you can join me and my co-host, fellow Barrett enthusiast, Derek, as we talk about the weird genre-defying and high-concept episodes of TV on Gimmicks, available at GimmicksPod on Twitter and Instagram. Cass, you're a five-time guest of Gimmicks having come on for Star Trek, The Clone Wars, Charmed, Riverdale, and Star Trek again. I did not realize that it's been five times. <laughs> yeah, you and you and Tommy are five-time guests. We're going to get jackets and everything. Woo! Really? I want a jacket. <laughs> oh my gosh, I shouldn't have committed to that. No, now I'm really excited. <laughs> well, we don't have jackets for this podcast, but Are You My Mother is on social media at My Mother Pod, and you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Pocket Casts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to reach out with any comments, feedback, or if you're interested in joining as a guest, you can email the podcast at areyoumymotherpod at gmail.com. We'll see you next episode as we keep asking the question, are you my mother? 